encouraged by one another. Thank you for the fellowship that we share around the tables. Thank you for the love that we have, Lord, that is unique and special, that is in Christ and in Christ alone. Lord, we pray that all that is going on on our campus tonight as we prepare for this next Lord's Day, as we encourage and inspire and challenge and lead uh, from preschoolers right through uh, teenagers and into this group and our rehearse the, as we rehearse the choir and orchestra and praise team and band, Lord, we pray that you'd bless everything that's going on on campus. Father, we love you. We, we thank you for uh, the wonderful provision of grace that we have in Christ that's, uh, that's exciting, that's fresh. And Lord, we pray that we can not just be hearers but doers of your word, that we would apply what we learn in our lives day to day. Father, we do pray for Alice's dear friend in Virginia that's going through this process, this procedure of cancer. Lord, be with her. We pray for her healing and that you would help her to uh, uh, just uh, to trust you, to depend upon you. Lord, guide those doctors, those that are treating her. And Lord, we pray that she would be back to the quality of life that she loves and enjoys. Father, thank you for each one in the room tonight. We pray that um, our hearts would be open, our minds, our spirits would be open, that you would have something unique and very special for each one of us this evening as Warren comes. Thank you for Warren. Bless him. Speak through him. Use him for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have in here have ever done a study or maybe uh, individual or collectively on the kingdom of God? One, two, three, about five of you, maybe six. Um, you didn't hear what I was, oh, you're too busy talking, you didn't hear what I was, no, I was just asking how many, and you're, as a pastor, you don't really count on this, because, because I was wondering how many people in here had studied the kingdom of God. In fact, if I were to ask tonight what is the kingdom of God, I assure you I would get a multitude of different answers, and yet... I believe it's an incredibly important topic for our church. In fact, Mark and I got together for a few weeks ago just yakking about some things, and, and I didn't even know then that I was um, scheduled to do this, but it got me thinking. And after our conversation together, I thought, you know what? One of these days, I wanted to start working on a series on the kingdom of God. I think it's important. And then a few days later, I get a call, and so I thought, okay, I've got to do it. So this is brand-new material for me. Uh, you are the guinea pigs, so if it really stinks, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I've not had time to uh, practice on someone else. But I really have gotten very excited about it, and I hope that by the time this is over that you'll be uh, as excited. But what I want to begin with is if we could take all of the teachings of Jesus and boil them down to a sentence, or if we could take the life of Jesus and boil his life down to a sentence, his passion down to a sentence, think for a moment, what do you think it would be? Because I believe in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, in the Lord's Model Prayer, Mark just preached on this a few weeks ago, Jesus makes this statement. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done, somebody else finish that, on earth as it is in heaven. 
And so we've heard of the kingdom. It's, it's, it's talked about multiple times in the New Testament, but I, I was sharing with my little sister. My dad was having some major surgery this week, and I was down in Waco with him, and I asked her, I said, what's the kingdom? And my little sister's grown up in a church all of her life, and, and she said, well, is it heaven? And I said, eh, no, it's not. I, I think a lot of us misunderstand the kingdom, even though we have heard of it so many times. So what Jesus is saying in the model prayer, and why I believe this is the very center aspect of his life and mission, is that nothing was more important to him than submission to his Father's will and the advancement of his Father's kingdom. It's what consumed his life. Now, you stop and think about that for a minute. He was consumed with fulfilling his Father's mission, which was advancing the kingdom and being submissive to his Father. That consumed him. My question tonight is, what consumes you? What consumes you? It's shocking to me that Jesus really only describes the church one time. Anybody know where that is? It's in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, 18 and 19. Jesus says three things about the church. He says, first of all, I'm going to build it. The job of building the church, that's not Mark's responsibility. Mark has a responsibility, but it's not to build the church. It's not your staff's responsibility. Jesus said, I'll build the church. Second of all, he said, hell is not going to overcome her. And number three, and this leads into what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Do you understand that the only institution on the face of the earth that's given the keys to the mystery of the kingdom is the local church? So Jesus talks about the church one time, but he talks about the kingdom of God roughly 100 times. Now, you're not at church on a Wednesday night unless you believe the church is important, right? If the church is important and he only mentions it once, how much more important do you think it is that we understand the kingdom and how the church fits in its advancement? Okay, you're just looking at me. I'm I'm, I'm wanting some sort of a head knowledge that you understand that. So I'm going to repeat this. If he he mentions the church once, and we would all say it's important, how much more important is something he mentions over 100 times? Well, it's very important. And so I think that the church has to understand what this is about, and we have to understand the role that we play in her advancement. Because, folks, please hear me. I, I am incredibly concerned with what I see in the church across this country today. I'm not nearly as concerned with what the world's doing as what the church is not doing. I want you to understand that. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. We whine about what the world's doing, but I'm a lot more concerned about what the church is not doing. And I'm, I'm I'm greatly concerned that the church does not understand the role that God created her for when it comes to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Because if we don't get this right, and I'm I'm saying this as lovingly and as sweetly as I know how, if we don't get this right, there will be a day that God will write Echabod on the doorpost of this church and it will die and this parking lot will be something else. I believe that with all of my heart. So the church has a very short window to get this right. So, before we dive into what the kingdom is, I think it's important to dive into what the church is. 
Because as I said a moment ago, if you get that wrong, you think you're going to get the kingdom right? If, if we're off just a little when it comes to the church, how much really off are we in terms of the kingdom? So here's what I want to do. In fact, the only thing that I'm sharing with you tonight that I've ever done before is this little diagram that I want you to see on cruise ship and or battleship. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is to right outside the box, and I want you to put just out to the left of cruise ship, I want you to write the word in small letters, who? Go down to the next line, what? The next line is where? The next line is when? The next line is how? And the next line is why? So here, who, what, where, when, how, why? So what I'm going to ask you to do is to write all of your notes outside of the box because we're going to fill the box in in just a moment and you won't have room. So what I want you to do is to, to answer those three, those six questions, I think it is, or six, yeah, six questions, and let's talk about it here in just a moment, okay? The difference between that you believe between a cruise ship and a battleship, okay? So let's go ahead. Y'all understand what I'm asking you to do? I want you to tell me the difference between who is on a cruise ship versus who is on a battleship. What is a cruise ship designed for versus what is a battleship designed for? Where does a cruise ship go versus where does a battleship go? So I want you to answer that, but write your answers outside of the boxes because I want us to fill in some blanks here in just a moment. So I want to give you a few minutes to work on this, okay? Difference between a cruise ship and a battleship. Uh-huh, who, what, where, when, how, and why. All right, let's start with a who. Who is on a cruise ship? A cr tourist. Uh, passengers, uh, would you agree that the people hopefully are friendly? But to be on a cruise ship, they don't have to be committed to anything, do they? Yes, there's no commitment whatsoever that is necessary for a ride on a cruise ship. But I want you to contrast it with that of a battleship. Because on a battleship, you have not passengers, but you have a crew. You have people who have been selected. They have assembled together as trained soldiers. Don't miss this. For a particular role. Everyone, everyone, everyone on a battleship has a role. My question tonight is, what's yours? All of a sudden, this big building is a battleship. And I want you to think about you on the battleship and what role do you play on this battleship. Because in a cruise ship, you don't have to be committed. You just have to get on the boat. 
Right. All right. Second, what? What is a battleship designed, I mean, a cruise ship designed for? It, yeah, vacation. It's designed for pleasure. There's swimming pools, and there's food, and there's skeet shooting, and more food, and it's pleasure, right? What? Yeah, adventure. Absolutely. Correct. But a battleship is designed for war. It is not designed for pleasure. Whether you know this or not, this church is not designed for your pleasure. I can say a lot of things tonight because I'm going home, okay? But so just understand, it's not here for your pleasure. It is here to equip you for battle. That's what this is about. Third question is where? Where does a cruise ship go? Well, it goes to nice places, right? It goes uh, to shopping malls and golf courses and fishing excursions, nice restaurants. What? Yeah, safe water. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great one. Safe water. In other words, don't you know exactly? How many of you have ever gotten on a cruise ship and you didn't know where that ship was going? No. We, of course we know where the ship's going. We, we, we get on a ship knowing where it's going. There's some places I don't want to go, and so I'm, that's important to me. On a, on a cruise ship, but on a battleship, you don't, do you? The only thing you know is that you're headed toward trouble. You're headed toward war. Two totally different mindsets. When? Well, people on a cruise ship, when do they go? When they want, when they can afford, right? On a battleship, nope, the commander-in-chief says, we're going. He's the one that gives the command to go and decides when the ship moves and where it moves. Now, if you're a control freak, this is going to bother you because you want to know where the ship's going all the time. Well, there's a general direction we know, but we're not always going to know exactly where it is that we're headed. How? Well, every single person on a cruise ship pays their own way. They use their own resources. But on a battleship, the commander-in-chief is paid. In fact, he paid with the greatest price possible, his own life. Why? Why of a cruise ship, the captain has one goal, and I, you can't miss this one. I don't want, okay? I'm kind of bracing myself for this because some of you may not like it. The captain's goal on a cruise ship is to make certain that everyone on the boat is happy. But your happiness cannot drive, and it does not drive, a battleship. Your commander-in-chief does not give a rat's rear whether you're happy. All he wants to know, are you faithful to the role that you've been called to play within the ship? Is that correct? And yet there are a lot of churches that believe, man, we've got to make every single person happy. Folks, I, I, I raised three daughters and, 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 and I had a wife, and, and I had a male dog, but it was neutered. I had nothing that I could relate with at my household. Do you think that I, for the 18, 19, 20 years those girls were at home, that we always had unison in everything that we did? Shake your head like this. No. So do you think a church is always going to be happy with every single decision that is made? 
Well, if you're on a cruise ship and you think you're on a cruise ship, that bothers you. But if you're on a battleship, which is what we should be, then there's very little thought to, should be given to how happy you are. All we need to be asking is, are we faithful to the role within the ship that the commander-in-chief has given us to fulfill? You see, on a cruise ship, you're on cruise. On a battleship, you're on mission. And ladies and gentlemen, please understand that the church must never forget that she is on mission. But unfortunately, there are many churches in this country today. They go, they see their church experience as going to a place to be with people they like, to sing songs that bless them, to hear messages that encourage them, to come home and to be unchanged. And they give very little thought to, did we advance the kingdom today? Did I advance the kingdom? Let me tell you something. When, when, when Mark gives an invitation and people, let's just say there's a Sunday and nobody responds. Does that bother you? Is your thought, well, our staff should have worked harder. Mark should have preached better. Or do we accept responsibility for what is or is not happening? Because if we believe that we can pay enough people to do our job, then number one, we're setting them up for failure, and we'll always be frustrated. You see, if we're involved in the fight, we don't have time to gripe. I, I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but, but, but that's true. If I'm involved in a fight and I see what my role is on the ship, I don't have time to wonder, am I happy? Is this experience blessing me? No, I'm all about the advancement of my daddy's kingdom. So we've got to understand that as a church, or we will never understand what the kingdom of God is all about. So if we're going to join God on mission, and I have to believe that's our desire, if we are then we have to be convinced that God today is not simply managing evil, but God is destroying evil. I I'm going to repeat that. God today is not simply managing evil. God right now is in the process of destroying evil. You have to understand that. I have to understand that. Because if I don't and I'm not passionate about it, then, then we as a church will never enter into the spiritual warfare that's going on around us today because the Bible's very clear about God's price to redeem humanity. The Bible is very clear of God's determination to dismantle evil on earth. In fact, every time Jesus preaches in the New Testament on the kingdom of God, it is to rally his troops to join him in his fight against evil. Now, here's the great thing as, 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 as warriors. The fight that we fight is not for victory. God has already won that victory. It's a fight from victory. You see the difference? The other days it looks like we're losing. Man, there are days in L.A., I get, uh, uh, there are weeks in L.A., I get so discouraged. I'm going, God, are you doing anything? And then God touches a guy like Kanye West. You please put him on your prayer list. Let's beg God to raise up a man to disciple him. That's the greatest concern I have for him right now is that there's a strong man that will pour his life into him. But I'm telling you, God's at work. But we've got to see that God right now, every day, is in the process of combating evil. 
and destroying evil. And the church plays a huge role in that, as we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. A focus on the kingdom has got to be the focus of our church and every single church that names the name of Jesus. She is a baby kingdom life center. When you think of a church, you think of her as a baby kingdom life center, a outpost of light in a very dark domain. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us something that I think we need to be reminded of. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says this. He said, Jesus rescued us from the what? The what? The domain. This is very important. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. And then what did he do? Transferred us to where? The kingdom of? Yes. Now listen to me. I hear people say this, and I don't, I don't jump on them. I don't correct them. But, but I think it's important that we understand there are not two kingdoms. There's one kingdom. There's a kingdom of light, and there's a domain of darkness. Did you hear me? There's not two kingdoms. The Bible never refers to the kingdom of Satan as a kingdom. It refers to it as a domain. The word domain means a strength or it means an authority. Uh, instead of trying to explain it, let me illustrate it to you. Do you remember when David was the king of Israel? Remember that? And he had a son by the name of Absalom who wanted to be king. And so Absalom gathered together a group of men to fight David and his kingdom, right? Absalom was not a part of a kingdom. He was a part of a domain, but the domain was a constant source of irritation to David until I think God just took Absalom out. So understand that what we're fighting, it's, it's smaller than the kingdom, but it's a very powerful aspect uh, it, it, uh, of that which we must deal with as a church. Not as big, but certainly has strength and or power. So We've got to understand that, and we've got to get that figured out. Because, ladies and gentlemen, please understand this, there are two realms right now that, are, that are coexist in the universe. There is what is called the heavenly realm, and the heavenly realm is not heaven. It's a spiritual realm. Everything in the heavenly realm is, is timeless and is spiritual, and it, I mean, it doesn't look like anything on earth. The, the, the other realm is an earthly realm, and the governing principle in the heavenly realm is the principle of God's authority. Everything in the heavenly realm submits to the authority of God. Does everything in the earthly realm submit to the authority of God? Well, ultimately it will, but no, of course not. <laughs> I mean, I, I had a kid in L.A. last week. He said, why is the world so messed up if God is in control of everything? And I said, well, there's coming a day that that's not going to happen, but I want to try to answer that question tonight. God is in the process of doing that. We want God to show up and to end everything, but you do realize when God shows up, life as we know it on earth is going to be over. Correct? So be careful what you pray for because God is going one day to do that. But what I want you to understand, Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven. Jesus recognized that on earth there is not a submission to the rule and reign of God. And he came to change that and establish the church as a combatant to that. We have a huge role to play in that, ladies and gentlemen, whether we know it or whether we don't. So, I want to talk just a little bit about some concepts because when I talk about kingdom, I want to make sure that everyone is on the same page when we talk about that word. The word kingdom, well, let me just ask you this. When you hear the word kingdom, so-and-so's kingdom, what, what do you think about? Somebody give me, what comes to your mind? Okay, it has a king. Every Well, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, every kingdom, you're so deep. Every kingdom has a king. Yes, correct. Somebody else. All right, it's a territory. It's something that a king has that's a geographical location. Is that correct? So we see these maps. Here was David's kingdom. It's a geographical territory. It's royally owned real estate or governed real estate, Right? But the word kingdom in the New Testament has nothing to do with geography. The word kingdom in the New Testament is in reference to God's rule and people's submission to that rule. Now, does God have the right to rule? Of course he does. But have, has everyone on earth given him that in their life? Well, of course they haven't. So understand that when we're talking about kingdom from this point far, forward, we are not talking about geography. We are talking about the king's right to rule and people's submission to that rule. All right? Well, let's look at the next phrase. That was what the word kingdom means, but what about the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is the exercise then of God's authority or God's kingship. That's the kingdom of God. In other words, his right to rule on earth as God right this moment rules in heaven. Okay? Does that make sense? You got it? Yeah. The word, the kingdom of God is the exercise of God's kingship or authority. It is his right to rule on earth as it is in heaven. So understand that. It's very, very important. But I want you to, to us to look just for a moment at what I would call basic kingdom conflict. Now, I handed you a sheet, and it's this sheet right here, and I tell you, this has been really enlightening to me uh, over the last couple of weeks as I've dug in and, and tried to understand this. I want you to see, do you have this sheet right here? It's called The Vision for the Kingdom, and, uh, and, I, and I wrote it up here. It, it's, I don't write very well, but, but here's what I want you to understand. The Old Testament saints saw the coming of the Messiah very different than the New Testament saints, okay? They believed that there would be this present age, this right here is the Messiah's coming, and then we would have the age to come. They believed that the Messiah would only come one time. When Daniel describes the coming of the Messiah, he describes him as coming in a blaze of glory, a blaze of judgment. 
Well, is Jesus going to come in a blaze of glory, in a blaze of judgment? Yes, at his second coming. They had absolutely no revelation or belief that there was going to be two comings of the Messiah. Now, I want you to look over at Mark. I think it is. Yeah, it's Mark chapter 4, verse 11. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, to you, speaking of the church, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside the church, outside of me, all they're going to get is a parable. To you who know me, who have entered into relationship with me, I'm going to reveal to you the mystery. I remember Dr. W.A. Crystal. I had an opportunity to, to serve with him at First Baptist Dallas many years ago. Carmen was still in high school and just a kid, and gosh, that seems like yesterday and then a million years ago. Dr. Crystal said it is a mysterion. I, just, I don't know why I love that word. It's one of those words he just used all the time. It's a mysterion this whole idea of the kingdom to everyone else outside of God's church. It's a mystery. Well, what does that mean? It means that God held something from us for a period of time until he chose to reveal it. Well, when did he choose to reveal it? When Jesus came. Up until that time, that whole idea of kingdom was very foreign to them. So, in the New Testament, we, because of Revelation, we understand that here's this present age, then we had the first coming of Jesus, then we have what is called the age to come, and at some point in time, there's going to be a second coming, right? You get that? Uh, in Matthew chapter 13, when you look at many of the parables on the kingdom, we understand that He's going to set up a kingdom that the people first century did not expect him to do. It was too, well, it, I, I think this is the easiest way for me to say this. If, if you really want to know what the kingdom age is, and oh, by the way, we're living in the kingdom age. This is referred to as the kingdom age. It's also referred to as the church age. In the kingdom age and the church age, do you, does anybody know the reason why the church age and kingdom age exists? It is God given, giving the nations one last opportunity to respond to him before he comes back. So when you hear the kingdom of God, think of it as the age of mercy where God is merciful and giving us more time until the second coming. And it hit me two days ago when I was studying this. This is what the scribes and Pharisees believed. They believed that the Messiah was coming, but when he came, he was going to be this 12-cylinder butt-kicking Messiah. He was going to kick butts and take names. He was this G.I. Jew, this military messiah. He was going to destroy Rome, wipe them off the face of the earth, wipe out God's enemies. And when he didn't do that, well, he can't be the messiah because his coming was in humility, not in a blaze of glory. 
initially. And so it threw everybody off, even the scholars of the day. But again, without God giving them that revelation, how would they have known about a first and a second coming? They didn't. And it's why so many of them refused to believe his deity. So, understand that the Old Testament saints saw this coming, this one coming at a, as a cataclysmic event that would destroy the enemies of God. So, here's what I want to do in conclusion tonight. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is a progressive movement of God to destroy the works of the enemy. Did you hear the word I used? I said it is a progressive movement of God to destroy the works of the enemy. So let's take a look at what has happened in the past and where we are today. In the first coming, in the first coming, it's at the, uh, at the bottom of your sheet. In the first coming, Jesus came for what reason? To destroy the power of the enemy. How did he do that? I uh, hope we know how he did that. Yeah. He did that by the cross. He did that through his resurrection. So his initial coming, but listen, this is important. It wasn't an issue to come to destroy God's earthly enemies. That's what the early Jews thought. His coming was an issue to destroy all of God's enemies and to set up an earthly reign. So his first coming was to destroy the power that Satan had on humanity. Now, where we live today is in what I call the in-between. We live in the in-between the first and the second coming. So what is God doing in the in-between? What he's doing is undoing. First coming, destroy the power of Satan. Second was to what? Undo the works of Satan. Now, God's doing that very quietly today. It's sort of like a submarine. He's sort of running below the surface. Uh, we don't see a lot of things crumbling. We don't see a lot of destruction. But understand right now that God is working to undo the works of the enemy in this in-between time, giving humanity one final opportunity to say yes. So understand that the kingdom age is a mercy age. There's no other reason. So what's God doing today? He's undoing what Satan is in the process of doing. Then in his second coming, it is to destroy the works of Satan. This is when he comes in a blaze of glory. This is when he comes in judgment. So the first coming destroys power. This in-between, undoing what he's doing. And number three, his second coming is to destroy him and those, anything that is raising itself up against the knowledge of God. And ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to talk more about this next week as we talk about the role that we have in this, 
How often are we praying right now for the destruction of anything in our country right now that is raising itself up against the knowledge of God? How often? How often do you take time in your Sunday school class to simply pray for countries like Somalia, countries like Afghanistan, countries like North Korea, countries like Libya, where there are huge strongholds? How much time are we as a church asking God today to tear down those strongholds and anything else that is raising itself up against the knowledge of God? You see, we just don't pray kingdom-mindedly, do we? We don't think about it. But I would encourage you, I'm going to talk more about this next week, but I would encourage those of you in a class, you ought to take a country, an unreached country, and for maybe a month or six months, just weekly praying for God to tear down strongholds there. Uh, Folks, I'm telling you right now, there is a revival of Muslims coming to faith in Christ in Iran in unbelievable numbers, more in the last 10 years than in the last 1,500 years. But to many of you, that's shocking because all you see is what CNN puts out or Fox News puts out. But I'm telling you, God is at work, but it's just quiet right now. And that's why we on our knees must be quiet like a nuclear submarine launching warheads in the form of prayer on behalf of the advancement of the kingdom. What do you think would happen if our church began to pray like that? I, I guarantee you. I think it not only begin to change the world, I think it change us. And I've always believed that the church that shines the furthest shines the brightest at home. There's only so much our pastor can do, our staff can do. This has to be something that we unite together and do together. And so there's an issue of, 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 of work, but there's also an issue of prayer, and we'll be talking more about that in the coming days. So I was sort of today was setting up what the kingdom is, and we're going to get into a lot more detail in the next couple of weeks. Uh, any quick question that you have about that? Does it make sense um, as best it can? I mean, there's still a lot of mystery there and some things we don't know, but does at least it make you feel like we need to be probably more engaged than we may be? Because it's really easy to get lulled into sleep. One thing about our church that I know, I, you guys love each other. This church loves being together, and we love doing things together. But my concern is that we love each other so much that we forget about those that are outside the fold of God. So I believe our greatest days are ahead as a church. I hope you believe that, but I do believe it's going to require a change. And one of those changes is I want you to ask yourself the question, God, what is my role on the ship called Hunter's Glen? What's my role? What is the role that you've called me to play here? What is my role in advancing the kingdom? Because if we don't have one, then would you agree with me, this church becomes nothing more than a cruise ship. It's fun for a while, but it gets real old real quick. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone who's here tonight for coming out on such a cold night. And I pray that, uh, if nothing else, you would open our eyes to what it is you want to do here. God, I believe there's so much more you want to do. And yet, God, at the same time, I want to thank you for what you are doing. 
I know that there are people's lives being changed. I know that, that you're saving people and that people are being responsive to you. I get it, but I also know, God, that there is so much more you wish to do. And help us to understand that we all share that responsibility here. That it's not just a staff issue, that it's all of our issue. And I pray that you would make us a battleship on mission. And that we would begin to ask you to tear down anything in this country, anything in this world that is raising itself up against the knowledge of you so that God is worshiped in every country in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Jody, anything? Okay, I, know, I thought you told me you were going to do an interpretive dance or a song or something tonight. No? Okay. All right. All right. Love you guys. Thank you all. I know a lot of people said don't talk too long. We want to go watch the World Series. So uh, it's about to start. and.